John 7, 53 to 8, 11. This is the passage known as the woman caught in adultery. We should better name it the man and woman caught in adultery. Let's read it. 753. And everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she had been in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, for this portion of your word. We ask you to teach us what you would have us learn. Whatever, Lord, we have known from this passage, misconceptions, misinterpretations, we pray that they will be clarified and that we will handle your word accurately. May we be careful to understand exactly what you mean in this section of your word. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This passage is a famous passage, the woman caught in adultery. This passage is brought up many, many times in reference to an accusation of sin and then how sin should be handled, how sin should be treated once one person accuses another of sin, how to handle it. And often this passage is misunderstood in the sense that it's used to show the laxness or leniency of Christ in reference to sin and how to deal with sin when sin is brought to the surface. This is how often this passage is used, to say, well, Jesus didn't expect her to be put to death, so why are you so concerned and worried about accusing me of sin and then expecting some punishment for my sin? However, there is much more to it than that. That is a misinterpretation, but there is much more to what's happening in this passage than a misinterpretation in order to excuse sin or to excuse the confrontation of sin. Let's see it more carefully. First, an explanation of the passage. In 753, after Jesus is discussed among the people, including the leadership among the people, in 740 to 52, it says in 753, and everyone went to his home. If this was on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, the Feast of Booths, chapter 7, verse 2, then they would have 
gone home or gone to their booths and then the next day prepared to leave. So everyone went, went away. Jesus on his part, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives are not very far apart. On the east side of Jerusalem, uh, there is the Mount of Olives, the Mount east of Jerusalem. He did not go very far, perhaps about as far as a mile away, depending on where he resided, lodged overnight. Maybe with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany, a place near the Mount of Olives or at the Mount of Olives. Perhaps there is where he went. It does not say. So he goes away, minding his own business, and then comes back, as he typically did, to minister in the temple. Verse 2. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. He went back to the temple to teach them because the crowd was there and they needed to be taught. This is Jesus' custom to go and teach the people wherever they are assembled. He would find those opportunities to teach them. It says he went early in the morning. The crowds, knowing who he was, they would have been eager also to come, knowing that he was there early in the morning. They were eager to learn. He was eager to teach them. In this case, they are busy doing the right thing. Both Christ and the crowds are doing the right thing. But who overnight, perhaps overnight, who overnight in verse 3 has a plot, has a conspiracy? As it says in verse 6, a test. A test. They intentionally put Jesus to the test. If they are there early in the morning, something must have happened the previous night where the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 3, brought a woman caught in adultery. Likely overnight, they caught her doing so. So they wanted to use her to test Christ to find grounds, verse 6, to accuse him. They wanted to accuse Christ. So while everybody is sleeping, they are not sleeping. Micah the prophet, he actually speaks of evil people. In Micah chapter 2 verse 1, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They forsook sleep in order to plot Against Christ. That was Micah chapter 2, verse 1. Same way here in John 8, they plotted overnight to catch Christ in a statement. It says in verse 3, scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Sadducees, the scribes were among those who were astute in the knowledge of the law because they were commissioned with their skills and training to transcribe the Old Testament book by book from a copy in front of them to new copies to make available to the priests, the Levites, the teachers such as the Pharisees and the scribes naturally would have been a part of the teaching class of the people in the leadership to teach others. 
They were among the ones plotting against Christ. Remember, in this council or Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they have political, spirit, or religious and political power over the Jewish nation. They have that and they don't want to give it up. Those who have power do not easily relinquish that power to a successor, especially if they have pride in their heart. When they have pride in their heart, they will look for ways to trip up, to trap, to test those who are gaining a following. So that's what they do in verse 3. They find a woman caught in adultery, and they set her in the midst. So they make a public display of this woman. They themselves are commissioned to handle matters of crimes and sins. They themselves. So why are they putting the woman there in front of Jesus, exposing her there? Why did they not privately, with the witnesses and their judges, decide the matter and figure out what happened? Why did they have to bring it to Christ? Why did they have to bring her to Christ and expose her to shame prematurely? If she's guilty, then eventually yes, but if she's not guilty, then there not, doesn't need to be any shame. But they themselves are not full of shame, so they shamelessly bring a woman to shame Christ. This is the irony of it all. It says also in verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. They claim correctly, we'll see, that she was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, we have evidence that it was true that she was caught in adultery because of the way that John describes the account of what happened. It was actually true that she was caught in the act because it says... In the following verses, uh, the, the fact that she was in this way. For example, verse 5. Now, in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and, and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So, in this account, he assumes what they are saying is true. He's not disputing the facts of the case. And verse 3, the apostle already told us she was caught in adultery. If she was caught in adultery, it assumes it's in the very act, which they say in their own words in verse 4. Jesus does not contradict any of the facts of the case. Presented first by John the Apostle in verse 3, and then from the lips of these accusers in verse 4, and then Jesus himself does not dispute any of the evidence. So she was caught in the very act. If she was caught in the very act, then why is she the only one there? Where is the man? Where is the man if she was caught in the very act? 
Does the Bible expect the man to be there? Yes. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Is that a quite clear interpretation statement? Yes. Another one is Deuteronomy 22, 22. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Both of them are guilty, therefore both of them should die according to the law of Moses, which they cite. They cite it, but they are not citing it correctly. Because they have evil intentions, because they want to do wrong to Christ, because they want to trick Him and trap Him, they inevitably have to present it and come about this in a way that's wrong according to Moses. They know better, but they're not doing what they know. They know Leviticus 20.10, and they know Deuteronomy 22.22. They certainly know those passages. They even know of David and Bathsheba. Do they not know? Of course they know about that. And they know that David knew that he deserved to die. And God mercifully said, you shall not die, 2 Samuel 12. They knew that he and she deserved to die when David committed adultery with her. They knew that. They knew all this. And yet, their knowledge of the word did not prevent their pride from acting wrongly to trick and trap Christ. It didn't stop them. Verse 5, Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might uh, have grounds for accusing him. They cite Moses, and this is what often happens. False teachers will be, I mean, false teachers cite the scriptures and distort the scriptures to get their agenda across. False teachers will cite the Bible by misquoting the Bible, misapplying the Bible in order to get their conspiracy, their evil agenda accomplished. That's what they do here. They try to do so to, it says clearly, test him to have grounds for accusing him. Now, what is the dilemma that they are trying to heap on Christ? What is the dilemma they are trying to foist on Christ? Well, the dilemma is, is Christ in agreement with Moses or not? If Jesus says something here and it disagrees with Moses, they would have grounds to accuse him and say, you contradict Moses. 
But then, knowing that the penalty was the death penalty, after a proper investigation, after a proper court case, the, the penalty would have been the death penalty. But the Jews do not have authority to put anybody to death. So if Jesus then says, yes, I know the death penalty is what she deserves, therefore go ahead and put her to death, then if that were to happen, who would they blame for the woman's death, for the woman's execution? Jesus. And then they could tell the Romans, we have this fellow over here upsetting things and breaking your laws, you Romans. So they could get the Romans against Christ to arrest Christ and even put him to death for murder or however they would justify Jesus being arrested and put to death or even arrested and put in prison, whatever they might have done. You see the dilemma they're presenting to Christ? If he says one thing, it might be disagreeable to the Romans. If he says another thing, it'll be disagreeable to Moses. In either case, Jesus would lose. However, he answers according to the trap that they set for him. But Jesus does not fall for it. He does not fall for it. He knows the situation. He knows that we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He knows that the Roman authority has the power of the sword to execute those who do evil. He knows that, Romans 13, 1 to 7. He's not going to do it, and he's not going to recommend that they do it. But also, they have misinterpreted Moses. Look at verses 6 and following. We have an enigma here in verses 6 to 8. It says, in verse 6, But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this point, Jesus does not answer them, but he writes on the ground, so he delays to answer them. His delay was not a delay because he didn't know what to say or do. His delay was for the purpose of writing on the ground. It says, with his finger wrote on the ground. They persist in verse 7. Then he says something. And then again in verse 8, again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Firstly, what did Jesus write on the ground? We don't know. This passage and no other passage actually says what he wrote on the ground. He does verbalize something in verse 7. Perhaps what he wrote on the ground is what he verbalized in verse 7. Perhaps the first time he wrote, maybe that's what he verbalized in verse 7. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Maybe that's what he wrote, maybe not. But he wrote again in verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What could he have written at that point? Perhaps. Uh, among the commentators and opinions, there's several opinions as to what he wrote. And the view that says that he may have written 
either Leviticus 20, verse 10, or Deuteronomy 22, 22, I think is the best option. This is speculation, but the other views, they have to compromise or contradict something in this passage or in Scripture. But that view does the least to circumvent or to contradict any part of Scripture. And why? Why does Jesus let her off the hook? Why does he do so? Because he knows it's a sham. He knows they're testing him, verse 6. He knows it's a trap. And a part of the trap is bringing only the woman. However, Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22 both clearly say the man and the woman need to be tried, need to be investigated. The evidence has to be brought forth with two witnesses, two or three witnesses at a minimum, minimum two or three witnesses for every fact to be confirmed. That wasn't the case. The man was not identified. Where was the man? So, verse 7. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. It is this verse that is often misquoted or misapplied. It is this very verse. Well, how can you tell me I'm doing wrong when you're not free of doing wrong? If you sin, then why are you pointing out my sin? If you do wrong, why are you telling me about my wrong? As though no one, no individual, or no church, or no pastor, or even no civil authority has grounds to accuse another of sin or a crime, or a sin that leads to a crime. That's not what the verse means. It's not what it means at all in context. It's not what, at all what the scripture means in any part of scripture. Like we said, Romans 13, 1 to 7. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. These passages clearly give the governmental authorities to practice righteousness in reference to civil crimes or crimes in society. The Bible has a place for the government to punish criminals, even if it leads to their execution. Romans 13, 1 to 7. So that is there, that is permitted. So it's not Jesus saying the government can't do anything. Jesus is not even saying that the church cannot do anything. As a body, the church cannot do anything. After all, Jesus was the one who taught Matthew 18, 15 to 18, or 15 to 17. Jesus taught in Matthew 18, 15 to 17. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus expected this to be done. This is the confrontation of sin. At the right, in doing it in the right way, at the right level, first in the micro level and then the macro level. 
first to individual to individual, and then eventually to the church. So Jesus expected that. And who does so but sinners? Some sinners help other sinners to overcome sin. The sinners who are currently sinning, while the others are not currently, currently sinning, right? I can't be one who's committing adultery and then go and see somebody committing adultery and say, hey man, you shouldn't be committing adultery. That's the kind of hypocrisy Jesus meant in Matthew 7, 1 to 5, or 1 to 6. Um, you hypocrite, first take the log that's in your own eye, then you will see clearly enough to help this, uh, your brother who has a speck in his eye, right? So we can't be hypocrites in that way. Jesus taught those things. Therefore, when he says, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her, he did not mean, whether as Christians or citizens, that we cannot expect correction, reproof, and even consequences, punishment, for the crimes or the sins committed. He wasn't meaning that at all. So what did he mean? Likely he meant that among them, these men, which one of you was the one committing adultery with her? Which one of you men, maybe more than one of them, or maybe all of them, because they all walked away, we don't know how many there were, which one at least, if not more than one, was committing adultery with her, and you are unwilling to identify yourself, because if you do identify yourself, then my answer would be, according to the law of Moses, both of you or all of you must be put to death by stoning. This is likely what Jesus was doing with this statement. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Likely he was targeting the men to confess and expose themselves. But they refused. They would not repent. Verse 9. They would not repent. They were silenced. They disappeared. But they would not repent. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she had been in the midst. They start leaving, the oldest first, perhaps because the oldest would have been the leader of the group. Usually that's the way it works. The oldest man in a group or the oldest man in a council, the oldest man on a board, the one who has seniority and age and experience and knowledge, he's the one that, that hints or guides the people to go in a certain direction and others follow his lead. This is what happens here. The oldest ones walk away first and then the young ones walk away. They all walk away. Not the crowds and not his disciples, not the woman, as it says here, and not Jesus. Jesus was left alone with the woman and whoever else was looking on in this dialogue. But the guilty ones, the accusers, the ones testing him, they were the ones who walk away because they did not want to confess. This shows an, an example, one example of a lack of repentance. This is better than nothing, right? They don't stay there and they don't start to or continue to argue or quarrel with Christ. They don't pick up stones themselves to throw at Christ. So it is a better scenario 
than picking up stones to throw at Christ because he silenced them. However, they didn't repent. They didn't repent. The ideal is not just to be silenced because you have a foolish argument, not just to disappear because you can't deal with the shame and embarrassment in front of the crowds. The best thing is to repent, to say, I did wrong, I sinned, I am among the guilty. Whatever deserves to happen to me, let it happen. But they would not. Verse 10, and straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Where are they? He's bringing to her awareness this fact that no one condemned her. And as Jesus' custom, he gets the people, he gets us to open our mouth and tell us what's the actual truth and the reality. Verse 11, and she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. When Jesus did not condemn her, it wasn't because she was innocent. We already saw, everybody knows she was guilty. The reason he didn't condemn her had to do with this sham trial. This was trickery. This was a trap. Verse 6 called it a test, testing him. He knew what was happening, so because it was a fraud presented to him, he did not act in accordance or speak in accordance with the fraud. He exposed the fraud and then let the guilty party walk away. That's what he did. He wasn't telling her that I never condemn sinners. Jesus will condemn sinners. He will condemn them on the day of judgment, unrepentant sinners. He will condemn them. He does so in Scripture throughout. Verse 11. And from now on, sin no more. When he teaches her sin no more, this phrase also, undernoticed, underquoted, not quoted at all, this verse from now on, sin no more, actually is Jesus telling her, I'm not condemning you, but I'm not saying, oh yes, go ahead and continue in adultery. He's not saying that. He's telling her, don't sin anymore. Whether it's adultery or any other sin, don't persist, don't practice your sin. Don't continue loving your sin, making excuses for your sin, ignoring it, throwing out decoys and distractions. Don't do things like that. Acknowledge your sin, confess your sin, repent of your sin, receive forgiveness, and walk righteously. Do not sin anymore. That's what he taught her. He taught her to quit altogether. Let us then emphasize a couple of more points, two or three more points in this matter. We saw clearly that this woman was guilty. We saw that. But we also saw that the man was not there. So the facts of the matter were not correctly and properly presented. This is a lesson where Jesus knows that that, that is the case. Therefore, he doesn't act contrary to the facts. He collects the facts. 
He knows what's going on, and then he deals with the situation accordingly. Should we also be a, uh, a people, individuals and a church and society, one that collects the facts and then acts according to the facts? Yes or no? We should. We already read Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Did he not say that if one sins, go reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If not, go take along one or two others so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Christ our Lord expected every fact to be presented and then for us to act accordingly. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And one more place, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 19 and 20. 1 Timothy 5, 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. Whoever it may be, even in the leadership of the church, facts must be collected before the accusation brought forth. And if the accusation brought forth is wrong or misleading or partial or whatever it might be, then we have to collect the facts and in the meantime, not fall prey to misinformation, disinformation, partial information, however we may describe it. That's one. Number two. Number two, we saw how in verses five to eight, five to eight, they misinterpreted Scripture or misapplied Scripture. Universally, inevitably, false teachers, false prophets, false pastors, false shepherds, these will, in one way or another, misquote the Bible or misapply the Bible. They don't have a conscience for truth. They don't have a conscience for accuracy. They don't have a conscience for correctness. They don't have that. They are very casual and flippant in their citation and application of the Bible, but not a true teacher. True, true teachers should not be that way and then misuse the Bible to manipulate the circumstances. 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. 14. 2, 14 to 18. 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 18. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. 
and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. He says not to wrangle about words. It's useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Instead, we ought to, those who preach and teach, ought to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of God's word, but handle accurately the word of truth. Handle it accurately. Be careful. Be meticulous. Be conscientious on the correct meaning of what God said. Then his example is these two false teachers, which he names. That means we should also name false teachers. And what was their false teaching? Verse 18. The resurrection has already taken place. Notice, they're using a biblical word, the resurrection. They, They use biblical words, but with an unbiblical meaning. They also use common words with an uncommon meaning. False teachers will use biblical words with an unbiblical or anti-biblical meaning. The resurrection. Well, the apostolic and Christological meaning of the resurrection had a certain meaning. And it did not mean that it had already taken place. The point was, the resurrection already happened and you people, you all missed out. Therefore, it upset their faith. They wondered. They were bewildered. Well, I thought the apostles said thus and so, and now you're saying this. What am I supposed to believe? So their faith is upset. They're in turmoil and confusion. Why? Because they use the biblical word and then put a spin on it with an unbiblical, anti-biblical meaning. And when people do that, it upsets the faith of the hearers. In Jesus' case, He confronted their false interpretation of Moses so that the onlookers, the spectators, who were listening to the conversation, the dialogue, that they would not be confused, that they would know the truth in the same way the pastor is supposed to be. Titus 1, verse 9. Titus 1, verse 9. He must be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Our next clarification is in verse 7, John 8, 7. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. We've already said he's not prohibiting the magistrate, civil authorities, from holding criminals accountable. And he is not saying that even the church and individual Christians cannot hold others accountable. He's not saying that. We saw from Matthew 18, 15 to 17. We also might say in 1 Corinthians 5, the man who had his father's wife, the Corinthians wouldn't confront him, wouldn't expect him to repent. So Paul said to the Corinthians, you are proud, you are arrogant, and you ought to do this you need to remove him from your church because he won't repent. So that's confronting sin. Are the Corinthians sinners? Of course, Paul's rebuking them currently for their sin of pride for not handling it the apostolic way. But after they repent of not handling it the apostolic way, he's 
pleading with them, writing them, instructing them to handle it the apostolic way and eventually throw out the man if he refuses to repent. Remove the wicked man from among you. Right? And then also, generally speaking, are any of us ever without sin in a universal or absolute sense? Are we ever completely sinless? No. None of us. First John, first John, this letter was written to believers, the church, the Christians, right? And in first John, he says, first John 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Is it possible for any one of us at any given point in our mortal life, between our conversion and the consummation of our faith when we see Christ, is it possible for any single one of us to be completely sinless, absolutely free from sin? Can we arrive at perfection, as some call it, sinless perfection or perfectionism? Is it possible? According to the Apostle John, no, absolutely no. Notice carefully in verse 8, the present tense of the verb, we have no sin. No Christian can say, we have no sin. I have no sin. If we say that, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He makes a distinction between the present tense in verse 8 and the past tense of verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned in the past, he clearly made a distinction. We can't say we have never sinned in the past and we cannot say currently we are free from all sin. If we do so, we are liars, we are sinners, we are deceivers, the truth is not in us. Yet he exhorts us, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our attitude should be one of humility and a desire when sin is brought to the surface to confess it and forsake it, receive the forgiveness and cleansing of God and move on from that to other things in the Christian life. That should be our desire, our perspective. Jesus does not prohibit us from pointing out another's sins. He's not prohibiting that whatsoever because none of us is absolutely 100% free from sin. And then finally in verse 11, verse 11, he tells her sin no more. Sin no more. It's not the first time he has said something like that. In chapter 5, John chapter 5, after he healed the man who was lame for 38 years, the lame man, in 5.14 it says, John 5.14, Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may befall you. Do not sin anymore, or 
John 8, 11, sin no more. Sin no longer. What did Jesus mean? Jesus didn't mean that we are able to achieve perfection and never sin again. He meant don't practice sin. Don't love your sin. Acknowledge sin as sin and seek to forsake it. He meant that. That's what Scripture teaches. 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. We find similar words. 1 John chapter 3. We start at verse 4. 1 John 3, 4 to 10. 1 John 3, verse 4. And everyone who has this hope, excuse me, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Using the terminology of John 5.14 and John 8.11, the Apostle John, who also wrote the book of John, explains and clarifies what he means, what Jesus meant and what Jesus taught his disciples. What is it? Verse 4, do not practice sin. Verse 5, Jesus came to do away with sins, to take away sins. Verse 6, if we are in him, then we don't sin. If we sin, if we practice love our sins, we don't repent of sins, then we don't see him or know him. Verse 7, this is a matter of deception. It's easy to deceive or to delude ourselves. It's easy to do so, but as a loving father, teaching father, he calls his readers, his hearers, little children. He has a concern for their spiritual well-being, and he says, let no one deceive you. It's easy to be deceived. If we practice righteousness, we're righteous, just as Christ is righteous. If we practice sin, verse 8 we actually belong to the devil. Do we belong to Christ and practice righteousness or do we belong to the devil and practice sin? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, which started in Genesis 3. His influence in people. If we're truly born of God, born again, regenerated, have a new heart, If we have a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, verse 9 says, 
No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed, God's seed, is in us. If God's seed is in us, it will not produce rotten fruit, but good fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He cannot sin because he is born of God. The Apostle John does not mean absolutely we never sin because of what he said in chapter 1 and elsewhere in this letter. He doesn't mean absolutely we completely are free of sin, but he's saying in reference to our former manner of life. We are not practicing loving, making excuses for, putting a rug over it, anything like that. We're not doing those things because Jesus came to destroy it all. Then, if you want to know who actually belongs to God and who belongs to the devil, he tells us, verse eight, uh, verse 10, verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. We might say, it's unclear. I don't know. The Bible is dubious, ambiguous. The Bible doesn't say clearly. I can't figure it out. Who's a Christian and who's not a Christian? Well, here the apostle says it's obvious. Obvious, evident, clear. He says, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And then you ask, what does it mean to practice righteousness? What does it mean to love my brother? Well, read the whole letter. That's the purpose of him saying so. Read the letter and he will give you illustrations of what it means to practice righteousness and what it means to love your brother and what it means to practice wickedness and what it means to hate your brother. He gives these throughout this letter. And of course, the Bible is full of these contrastive examples of both righteousness and wickedness, good fruit and rotten fruit. So let's practice righteousness. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.